Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. I'd like to speak very, very simply and straightforward this morning and just um, have felt strongly from the Lord that we need a word of encouragement and a word of strengthening today, just a word to kind of uh, lift our spirits and give us resolve. The setting for this passage is that David is in the wilderness and he's running from his son Absalom. Now, that sentence in itself never should have happened. It was part of a chain of events that started when David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and committed the indirect murder of her husband by sending him onto the front lines and making him sure that he was in the battle uh, right at the front. And then, as a result of that, David's son Amnon um, defiled Absalom's sister Tamar uh, in one of the kind of uh, uh, unseemly parts of Scripture that we have to deal with because it gives context for a lot of other things. And, and as he kind of defiles Tamar, then Absalom is understandably upset and sets about uh, in motion a plan so Amnon will be killed. And because Absalom is proud at this point and because there is an underlying sense that he's frustrated with David, that David had been uh, in a sense, somewhat of an absent father and hadn't done uh, more proactively about uh, Tamar's situation and about Amnon and all that junk that's there, that Absalom decided that David wasn't really worthy to be the king, even though he had been anointed to be king. So uh, Absalom decided that he was going to get a group of people and he was going to create uh, a rebellion and to try to uh, start a conspiracy to get David out of the throne. Now, that conspiracy was very strong, and uh, Absalom had big-time support behind him. And it was so strong and so powerful that when David realized it was going on, that he didn't even uh, try to defend it. He just took his family and his servants, and he ran into the wilderness because he knew that Absalom had the support of many strong people behind him. Now, needless to say, uh, that's a time of great unrest in Israel. And it was something that really didn't need to happen. It was at a time when things should have been going very well, but it created a lot of uncertainty, not only for the nation, but for David. And as I was studying this passage, I really tried to uh, get inside his mind and tried to understand what would he have been feeling. And as a father myself, to try to get some insight into what he was thinking as he's in the wilderness, and we'll read the passage in just a minute, um, about what it was like and, and looking back and memory, uh, remembering Absalom as he was growing up and the relationship that they had and, and now he sees his son taking him on. And I have to think as a dad that, that he wondered about what had happened and how the relationship used to be. And, and, and even though now he knew it had to be stopped and he's asking here in the passage, Lord, you have to, you have to stop my son. You have to, he's going to have to face the sword. That had to be so bittersweet um, to know that David was God's man for the throne. But here's his son. And something had changed. And life had become different. I was very struck this week by the difference that 10 years makes. I was driving in my car. I have no idea where this thought came from. But when I get those thoughts, I write them down because I think that's probably for the sermon. 10 years. How much difference does 10 years make? Ten years ago, I was 36. 
My oldest boy, Jacob, was two, and my middle daughter, Annie, was four months old. Matthew wasn't even a thought yet. He was five years from being born. In 10 years, I'll be 56. I'll have sent two kids to college. Jacob will be graduating. Annie will be a sophomore, and Matthew will be getting ready to drive. Ten years ago, our parents, Julie and my parents, were in their 50s and 60s. In the next 10 years, it's very likely that one or two of them at least may go to heaven. Ten years ago, we had never heard of the following items. Dockers pants, wrinkle-free shirts, the iPod, iTunes, iPhone, iPad, XM radio, Bluetooth, Facebook, YouTube, high-definition television, Nintendo DS, Wii, Many of you are like, I couldn't live without those things. In 10 years, we'll be looking at the possibility of national ID cards, smart chips in everything, and to get on a flight to Florida to have your retinas screened. 10 years ago, George Bush was president. Barack Obama was in the Illinois Senate. In 10 years, we could have elected three more presidents. 10 years ago, 9-11 had not yet happened. Extremist terrorism was not really in our consciousness, and Islam was not growing in influence. In the next 10 years, there is no idea what will happen. Ten years ago, the world leaders were Ariel Sharon, Yasser Arafat, and Saddam Hussein. All of them are now dead. In the next 10 years, the Middle East can only get more volatile. The faces will only change, and we have no idea where all this conflict is going to go. Ten years ago, I had never been to Racine, Wisconsin. I didn't know any of you. In 10 years, Lord willing, we'll celebrate our 10th anniversary as a church unless the Lord comes back before then. 10 years. Incredible changes that happen in a short period of time. And that can bring excitement, but it can also bring uncertainty. And ironically, change is the one constant in life. It's part of life that things change and things progress and things are altered. And I think what's so amazing about what we've watched in the last two or three months is how quickly we're watching that change take place in the Middle East. Now, even saw an article last night that said, now there's more unrest. Now it's spreading into Jordan and to Syria, which you know as a student of of the Bible is very significant because of how that impacts Israel than how that impacts the thought of prophecy and the Lord's return. All of this taking place so quickly, and that can only affect our thinking uh, a little bit. I mean, it has to, at some point, kind of engulf us and start to say, what does all this mean, and how does it play out in my life, and what does it mean about the Lord? And it can influence us both positively or negatively, both adversely or, or in terms of encouraging us where we look at this and we say, what is the Lord doing? And what is the Lord allowing? And how am I going to respond to it? Either we draw nearer to his presence in these times of uncertainty and rest, or we draw away away from him. Now, there are really only three kinds of uncertainty, or not only three kinds, but there are three major kinds of unrest in life. One is personal, one is circumstantial, and one is spiritual. Personal is your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your emotional uh, turmoil or emotional strength in life. Circumstantial is things like work and stress and finances and world events. 
And spiritual is your relationship with the Lord and how you trust in the Lord. Now, in Psalm 63, David's experiencing all three. He knows that his kingdom will really, in a sense, never be the same. He knows that God has put him on the throne, but he's in the midst of family turmoil and national turmoil and governmental turmoil. So there's a sense of not kind of knowing where it's going to play out, even though he knows the promise of God. His family at this point is permanently altered. It will definitely never be the same. And he knows that this is a result of a spiritual problem in his own life when he sinned and rebelled against the Lord. So here he's sitting in the wilderness, and he knows that he should be on the throne in Jerusalem, that God has anointed for him, and God has promised to be his eternal throne, but now everything in his life is unsettled. And he's feeling turmoil and uncertainty. And maybe some of you are feeling that this morning. Maybe you walked in kind of shaky, kind of a little bit bothered and disturbed in your spirit, whether it's the Middle East or whether it's your finances or your, or your job, or just you just feel that, uh, that, that angst, that I'm not sure. Now, David at this point could respond by kind of throwing his kingly weight around. He could start to be demanding and crave his entitlement and his privilege and say, well, God, you promised me now. Come on. You you said that this was my throne, so do something, Lord. We get that way sometimes. But what's interesting is it doesn't ever seem to cross his mind. He doesn't grab a horse and head back to Jerusalem and say, I'm leaving this wilderness behind. I'm going to go confront Absalom. This is my throne. I'm going to address the problem, and I'm going to reclaim it. Instead, and this is what I want us to get this morning, and it's very, very simple. Instead, he just starts to think about the Lord. And he starts to desire the presence of the Lord. And he starts to move closer to the Lord, and it changes him. Look at what he says here. In Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I've seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it, they'll go to the depths of the earth. They'll be delivered over to the power of the sword and they'll be a prey for foxes. But this king, he'll rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by the Lord will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Now, the first thing I want you to see in verse 1 is that David uses a personal pronoun. He says, oh God, you are, tell me the next word, my God. This is not arrogant, and it's not uh, cocky. It's deeply personal. God, you are my God. I want you to think just for a minute about that phrase, because it underscores just how amazing God's grace is. We are called to be the children 
of God when at the most we could ever hope for would be to be his slaves. But God is so rich in love and in mercy that he not only adopts us as his own, but he makes us clean and exonerated from sin forever. And then he says, you take my name. So we can honestly, every day, joyfully say, God, you're my God. You're my God. It would be enough that he would say, you're my children. But now we can say, you're my God. And I hope we never, ever take that thought for granted. It's an incredible uh, privilege that God has given us. And it's what drives us away from any self-absorbency to trust in the Lord and to be humble before him. Oh, God, you're my God today, right now, in this place. You're my God. There's no other God. There's nothing else I want. You're mine. And what a statement that is that God would say, you can call me yours. Now, it's that perspective that motivates the next three phrases in verse 1. Because instead of claiming his rights and demanding his own fulfillment in the middle of all this uncertainty, David turns to the Lord just with a deep desire to praise the Lord and to be satisfied only in his presence. Look at what he says. He says, I will seek you earnestly. That word has passion and fervency and a strong desire to see the Lord work and to see him be near. It doesn't have, that word seek doesn't have even an ounce of emotional complacency. It doesn't have even an ounce of spiritual smugness. It's dissatisfied in a good way. It says, Lord, there's still a little bit of distance between you and me. I don't like that distance. That's not a good thing. So, Lord, I'm going to seek you with everything I have. I'm going to be earnest. I I just can't wait. And then he goes a step further. He says, Lord, just so you understand how zealous I am for this, my soul thirsts for you. I yearn for you. I hunger for you. I I need you so badly. I need you to be near with me. Now, David's not being overly emotional, and he's not being fake in saying this. This is generally the desire of his heart. Lord, I need you. I thirst for you. And that concept was magnified even more by the desert. He starts with thirst because thirst is what has to be satisfied. You can go without food, and I probably should, for two or three weeks. You can actually survive. You could be on a hunger strike even for for months, but you can only go a short period of time without water. After a while, your body starts to shut down. I wish I knew all the medical facts on it, but, but eventually your body says, if you don't give me some water soon, I'm quitting on you. So you can go without food for many days, but you can only survive without water for about three or four days. Now draw that truth over to your spiritual walk. Are you going weeks without thirsting for the Lord? Are you hungering for his word or or is the meat just kind of sitting on the plate and on the shelf? Are you neglecting the Holy Spirit who wants to be the one who will refresh you and give you new life and give you a fervency for the Lord and give you a fervency for the things of the Lord? Or is there a constant kind of thirst that's not being satisfied? Do you thirst to be in his presence? Several of you have said to me, and it's been such an encouragement to Julie and me, several of you have said to me, We just can't wait to get to church on Sunday. I drove past this building, uh, I think it was yesterday, and I'm like, I can't wait to go to church. That's going to be cool. We get to go be together. 
Some of you have said, I just, we're so excited on Saturday night. And that's wonderful, and I hope you keep that passion. But even more, I hope we have a passion to get before the throne of grace with us and the Lord and to spend time in his presence. And to take up this word and to say, Lord, teach me now. No distractions now, not not encumbered by something else. Lord, I'm going to open your word. Teach me. I, I want to know what you have to say. I want to know you better. I want to understand your word. I want to take the time to really dive into it and to say, Lord, what are you telling me? That should be a thirst. He says, second, my flesh yearns for you. The word literally means to faint with anticipation. Have you ever been so excited about being in the presence of the Lord that you're just a little, little giddy, little, wow, I can't wait. Oh, man, I can't wait. Now think about the context. You would think that when you're on the run in the wilderness with no time to grab supplies before you left, with your own son chasing you with the absolute desire to kill you and take over your throne, with no real friends and support around you, with knowing that the tide had turned, that the people were somewhat against you, that hunger and thirst for the material would be what you'd want. You'd be sitting there going, man, I'm so hungry, and I wish I had something to drink like David had in 1 Kings when he said, oh, I wish I had the water from that well. You would think that David would be saying, I wish it was like the palace. The desert is a harsh and demanding and unyielding and desperate place. Look at what David calls it here in verse 1. He says, it's a dry and weary land. It's devoid of life. You would think that David at this point would be saying, I really need a drink of water. Lord, we need some food. Can you do like you did with Elijah and send some food down with some ravens? Or could you do what you did with with the people in the wilderness and send some food? Maybe there's a rock you could point out that I could hit, that some water would come out. Lord, could you do that? I know you've done that before. But David says, the only thing I thirst for, look at the end of verse 1, is for the Lord. This dry and weary land is not just geographical, it's spiritual. As I've said many times, the wilderness is a place of greater spiritual clarity and insight. So David gets out there and he has to reflect on the consequences of his sin and he has to feel parched emotionally by what he has done and he knows there's no way it's going to end well. There is no way this situation is going to end positively. But I want you to notice, he doesn't sit there in self-pity and worry, and he doesn't try to formulate a plan to solve it. He just refocuses his heart and his mind, and he does what he had stopped doing. He seeks the Lord, and he renews his spiritual appetite for the things of God. How does he do that? He says in verse 2, I remember your sanctuary. I remember what it's like to be in the power and the glory when it was manifest. And listen, where God's presence is, there will never be a lack of his power and his sufficiency. How many know this morning that the Lord is never weak? Never weak. There is never a time when we can look at that and say, God is lacking right now. 
There's never a moment where he doesn't know what to do or he doesn't know what's going on or he doesn't know how to protect us and provide us for us. There's never a moment where he looks at the situation and goes, you got me. I don't know what to do. You people are crazy. He could say that, right? There's never a moment where God is uncertain. He is all-powerful and all-sufficient for every one of our needs. You've got to know that that's true. And because that's true, look at verses 2 and 3. We can confidently say that he alone is the source of strength and security. So because we know that now, what should we do? We should thirst for his presence. We should say, Lord, we want you near us at all times. And if there is something that is in the way of that, remove it. And if it's painful to me, so be it. Because I cannot be away from you. See, it wasn't just David's uh, God's power that David wanted. It wasn't just vengeance. Lord, come on, get Absalom now. That's how most of us would pray. Lord, what's going on? This is my throne. Get them. Now, he never prays that. He just says, Lord, here's what I need. Here's what's better than life. Look at verse 3. Your loving kindness is better than life itself. That's a great Hebrew word. It's the word chesed. It's a combination in English of two words, love and kindness. But that word chesed, it transcends by a mile our limited understanding of those words love and and kindness. Hesed literally means goodness, kindness, and faithfulness that doesn't fail or stop. And because this is descriptive of the Lord, we have to take those thoughts out to the maximum possible degree of perfection. That when God works, his love and his kindness and his goodness and his faithfulness is not only pure, but it is eternal. It never ever stops. And he says, your loving kindness is marked by your power and your mercy and your grace. And my lips now are going to praise you because I understand that that's completely undeserved. And it is expressed in my life more greatly than I can ever fathom. And it's driven by your love that you love me more than I can imagine. And that your mercy is more often than I can count. So the Lord says, what could you possibly care about more than that? Your possessions, your relationships, your life, your job, your money. What's more important than that? My loving kindness is better than all those things. Would you rather have a sailboat in the Caribbean? Doesn't sound bad, I must say. Would you rather have the job that pays seven figures? Would you rather be popular and good-looking? Would you rather have prominence? Or would you rather have the faithfulness, loving kindness, and mercy of God that never ends? That's not even a choice. There shouldn't even be a question in our lives of, of which is better than that. Notice what David says. And this is something that we should know and love as believers. He says, to dwell with the Lord is better than life at its very best. Even if we're in the position, and David was, of greatest wealth, comfort, security, power, pleasure, relationships, there's nothing 
better, and he's writing this from the desert, than the presence of the Lord. Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and exist, which means that not only our whole being is under his authority, but it means that nothing compares to knowing him. There is nothing the world will offer you this week. There's nothing the world will advertise this week. There's nothing the world will promise us this week that is even within the same area. I don't even know a better word than God's loving kindness. Think of the security every day as you wake up and the security every day as you go to bed that sins are forgiven. Think of the security every day as you wake up and every day as you go to bed that God has his hand on you, that he has his spirit within you, that he has promised you eternal life, that nothing, Romans 8, can ever separate you from his love. Think of the security of that because if you've been saved as long as I have, sometimes it is very easy to take that for granted, isn't it? To be caught up by the materialism of life to be caught up by the stress of life, to be overwhelmed by the uncertainty of life. When David says, listen, all we need to do, verse 4, is just praise you and bless you as long as we live because you are everything that we need. I'm going to lift up my hands to your name, Lord, because I don't need anything else. If I've got your loving kindness, I could spend the rest of my life in this wilderness. doesn't matter. Let Absalom have the throne because I care about you. And look at how this is expressed. My lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live. And I'll lift up my hands to your name. What a great verse. The first point there is that our witness needs to be open and unashamed. Because the Lord is amazing and powerful and sufficient, we should openly honor him. We should declare his greatness and his leading, even if at the moment we're not particularly enjoying it. And some of you right now are not particularly enjoying where your life is. And that's okay. We've all been there, and we'll be there again. But what we must not do is stop declaring how great God is. Someone once said, our praise doesn't depend on our personal reception of the benefits because that would just make us more selfish. In other words, if we only praise God when he gives to us, we're arrogant and self-centered. It's the times when we praise the Lord when things aren't going well that that's true worship, that he is Lord and we will boldly praise him just for that fact alone. And even if nobody else praises him, even if I come in here and I'm the only one singing, so be it. I'm still going to praise him. I've heard people say over the years, well, I don't like to sing in church because people will hear my voice. Who cares? Who cares? Praise the Lord for who he is. He says, make a joyful noise. He doesn't sing, sing a beautiful melody that everybody will know is on key. Second, our witness must be humble and constant. That word bless, I will bless you as long as I live. The word literally means to kneel down and praise. There's a definite posture and attitude inherent when you enter the Lord's presence. If you go to see a king in the old days, You would walk in and you would kneel before him as an act of reverence. The Bible says, I will bless him. It doesn't just mean I'll speak a lot of praise. That's a good thing. But it means the attitude behind that is going to be one of reverence and humility and going down before him because he's my king. And then third, it says, I'll lift up my hands. 
the, the thought there is to be honoring and dependent. Listen, let me dispel this once and for all for us in case anybody's confused, and I don't think anybody is, but let me say it anyway. Lifting up your hands to the Lord is not charismatic. It is biblical. Now, that doesn't mean every song you need to have your hands raised because we don't want to be disingenuous with the Lord. But in the old days, in biblical times, the hand was seen as the instrument of man's power. So lifting it was saying, I don't have power. I don't have strength. I need you. It's like the child, I told somebody a couple weeks ago, standing in the crib. When we had kids, this whole concept of lifting hands to the Lord became crystal clear to me. Because I walked in one night, and one of the children was in the crib going like this. And I said, that's it. Come on, I need you. Pick me up. Help me. And I thought, that's what this is. It's not a show. We don't lift our hands. Oh, look at me. I'm lifting my hands and waving around. Listen, it's not to be distracted. It's saying, Lord, I have nothing. I need you. I need your power. I need your presence. Lord, pick me up. And I don't mean that to be weird. Come on now, listen. Come on, I need you. My lips will praise you. I'll be open. I'll bless your name. I'll be humble before you. And I'll lift my hands in dependency. What happens to kids as they get older? They get their own bed. They become autonomous. They learn to dress themselves. They come in and wake you up. You don't have to go in and pick them up. They're not going like this. They come in and go, what am I having for lunch? Peanut butter and jelly again? Self-dependent. Listen, that happens to us. Come on, we get to be adults as Christians, right? And we stop saying, oh, Lord. All right, come on, Lord, what's now? Another crisis, another conflict, more uncertainty in the world? We need to get back to that heart of lifting up our hands. Keep the thought going in the next verse. He says, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. David's not sitting in the palace eating at the king's table at this point. He's in the wilderness But he doesn't care because the point is not food. The point is being satisfied in the Lord. He knew love and mercy and forgiveness and God's presence. What did he need with food? He says, my mouth will praise you. His mouth's not full of rolls and butter at this point. He's saying, what's coming out of my mouth will be the fruit of my lips. I will praise you. I'll declare your greatness to anybody that will listen. Listen, is God's love and mercy good this morning? If you believe that, say praise the Lord. Right. That's what we're supposed to do. With joyful lips. I don't care how you felt when you walked. I do care how you felt when you walked in here. But that's not the point at this point. Because what we're hearing is, Lord, you're good. And we need to praise you. And we're not going to be tentative about it. And not timid. And not ashamed about it. We're going to praise the Lord. When we're done studying and we come to sing, let's praise the Lord. Not, uh... Listen, if you've got a bad voice, sing louder. Sing louder than anybody else. And you know what? We're going to praise the Lord. We're not going to look at you and go, what is your deal? Seriously. You cannot carry a tune. If anybody does that, if somebody looks at you with that attitude, you tell me. I'll talk to them. 
Just praise the Lord. Now look at the next section, because I love the section. I want to finish with this. Look at verse 6. David says, I remember you on my bed, and I meditate on you in the night watches. Now remember, David's not sleeping in the Jericho Marriott at this point. He's not laying on a luxury select comfort bed with his covers and his sheets and a nice pillow and a fan blowing and some white noise. He's in the wilderness. He's sleeping on the ground. Maybe he has a a rolled up coat or a stone for a pillow, probably no blanket, but oh, this hit me so strongly. As he's laying there, he looks up at the night stars and it all becomes clear to him again. God, you are faithful. And you forgive me even though I'm a sinner. And your awesome power is on display above me. And I look at my own plans and I think how futile that is. And I think about your sovereignty and your promises. And I know Absalom's coming for me, but there's no way he's going to win because your promise can't be broken. And, And Lord, you're powerful and my situation's desperate, but you're with me. And I have a dirt bed, but I don't care because you will provide abundantly. And David lays there, and I don't know if he needed to be out there to get clarity, but God gave it to him. He looked up, and he understood, and he remembered the faithfulness of the Lord, and he meditated on the thoughts that gave him this song that we're reading 3,000 years later, and he praises God for being his help and his joy. Listen, nighttime can be a dangerous time for us because when it's quiet and the phones aren't ringing and we're not updating our status to anybody, we can start to get discouraged because our mind starts to work. I don't know if you're like me, but I don't fall asleep right away. And if I've watched something on TV about the state of the world or I've read the newspaper or whatever, I lay there and my mind can start to go and and I'm just tangential, my thinking so messed up. I'm just tangent, 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 tangent. And I have 20 things in my head. And that can cause us to become very discouraged and very emotional and, and even very self-absorbed because weariness and fear and doubt starts to come in. So instead of being scared by the talk show host who says the world's ending, what does David tell us? He says, look up, put your confidence in the Lord. Lord, even as I lay down on the dirt at night, it's so obvious as I watch the stars move across the sky and I see the moon rise up and I know the earth's turning and you made every one of those stars and you have them all numbered trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. You are perfectly in control. And here's the kicker to it. Look at verse 7. Not only are you in control, but you have been my help. Remember all the times. Think about all the proof of his faithfulness so you don't get trapped in the I belief. There's iTunes and iPod and I whatever. I think someday there will probably be an iPad application called I belief, which means... I trust in myself. We don't actually even need the app. That's human. What does the Lord say? I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
My authority never ends. My power is infinite, and I will never stop helping my children. You know what's cool about the Hebrew language? It doesn't have a present tense. The Hebrew language doesn't have a present tense. So when they form words, they begin with what's in the past. You look at the past to understand the future. So when the Spirit inspired people to write the Old Testament in Hebrew, including David, the emphasis is what God has already done in the past to give us full confidence in the future before us. The way you deal with the uncertainty and the upheaval and the unrest of the present is to look at what God has done with certainty in the past so it gives you confidence in the promises of the future. Never get stagnant in your thinking of just the here and now. God doesn't work in time. He works in infinity. So he says, you think in terms of 1120 or 1020 on Sunday morning, May, whatever, March, I don't know what month it is. What year is it? God didn't wake up this morning, so to speak, and say, "Mm, March 27, 2011, I wonder what's happening down there in Racine. He sees it all at once. And as he writes scripture, he says, you, because you are caught by time, you look at the past and you remember what I've done and it'll give you confidence in the future. But don't get so caught up in the present. David says, because, look at this, we're done. Because you've been my help in the shadow of your wings, I'll sing for joy and my soul clings to you. It says, your right hand upholds me. That specificity is not accidental. The right hand was the hand of favor. It's always powerful. It's the hand of honor. When somebody in the Bible blessed somebody, they would put their right hand on their head and they would speak the blessing of God because that was the hand of favor. It held greater value. Now this says, look at it, Your right hand upholds me. You sustain me. You put your hand on me. You hold me up. You give me strength. You bless me. Even in times of trial and and need for deliverance, you will uphold me. Not with your left hand, but with your right hand. There again is the value that God gives to us. And David keeps rejoicing and praising the Lord because he says, your right hand is on me. The Lord does this whenever we have a need. But go all the way back to verse 1. First, he wants us to earnestly seek him. He wants us to be in the right place. So even if things are dry and weary and we're worn down and we need that refreshing work of the Spirit to quench our spiritual thirst, God says, when you come and seek me, I will uphold you in my right hand, even in the midst of change and uncertainty. And you lift up your hands, and I'll hold you. You put your hands up, and you ask me to help you, and I will pick you up, and I will hold you. I held all my kids with my right arm. It always felt weird on my left. I'll hold you. My presence will give you strength and security, and it will satisfy your soul. With the Lord, you will never, ever be disappointed. 
Now listen, maybe there's a dryness and a weariness in your life today. The only thing I can think to ask is, what is making your situation feel like that? If the Lord is sufficient and faithful and brings you joy and praise, then there has to be something that's withholding that joy, something that's causing you not to experience that. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's apathy. Honestly, it really doesn't matter what it is as long as you understand that it exists. And it needs to be gotten rid of. I got to tell you, I felt weary yesterday. And as I kept studying this passage, I thought, I don't have that joy right now. I, don't, I feel weary and dry. And the more I studied and the more I prepared, the more I prayed, I started to say, Lord, you're kind of quenching that thirst. And even this morning, a little bit of uncertainty. I'm being very honest with you. Uncertainty and not feeling comfortable with my notes and kind of saying, well, what's this going to be like? Will this encourage anybody? And the more you get into it, the more you praise him, right? The more you speak his name, the more you talk about the goodness of God. Say, I'm fired up now. There's nothing dry now. I don't feel like, oh, What am I going to do? Because the Lord's good. Close your eyes just for a minute. Let's do what David did. Let's just, very still now. Let's just remember, just you and the Lord. Just remember how the Lord has been your help in the past. joy you've had in the times you've rested in the shadow of his wings. Let me ask you as your friend and your brother, do you you thirst for that again? Can't you just picture David as he's out there laying under the stars and thinking about his life and all of a sudden it just clicks for him. God, you are my God. Oh, I'm going to seek you earnestly. I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to praise you. Because you're good. You're faithful. You're sufficient. And you hold me with your right hand. I want to encourage you and call on you just in the silence of this moment between you and the Lord. If it's a dry valley right now, if your life right now and your spiritual walk is like those dry bones we talked about last week, If that describes you, today's the day to get spiritually refreshed. Today's the day to lift up your arms to the Lord and say, Lord, I need need you. I need your presence. I need your strength. I'm worried. I'm fearful. I'm overwhelmed. I haven't spent time with you. Just refresh me. I want to do something I didn't plan on doing. I hope this is the Lord's leading. If that's you, and there's going to be absolutely nobody looking, I ask you not to look. I wanted you to just lift your arms to the Lord, just as we talked about, just saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to be that dependent child that just needs more of you. Uphold me with your right hand.
Now, what the Lord is going to do as you say that is He's going to fill you with His power and His glory. He's going to remind you of His loving kindness. And if that's sincere as you've done that, He will fill your lips with praise this week. He will fill you with confidence by His Holy Spirit. That's His promise. As we stay humble and dependent before Him, He will fill us. Now, the enemy is going to try to distract you. That's what he loves to do. But he is no match for my God and for your God. God's loving kindness is better than anything life has to offer you this week. So I would encourage you, as you've yielded now, continue to yield to him. And he will refresh you and wash you and strengthen you for what lies ahead. Father, we praise you this morning. We don't even know where to start in thanking you. We don't know how to adequately express our gratitude to you for who you are and what you've done. But Lord, our lips do praise you. Our heart is full because of what you have done. Lord, take us out of the area of dryness and weariness, not just with life, because that's always going to be there, but take us out of any area of dryness and weariness with our walk. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Give us that fire. That fire that burns, that strengthens us for the days ahead. Lord, we want to serve you as Randy prayed earlier, we want to have an influence in the city, in this area, with our friends and our family. Strengthen us and embolden us for that work. We thank you that you are sufficient. We thank you that we never have to doubt you. Lord, you know exactly what's going on. So, Lord, our eyes are drawn to the sky. We see the stars and we recognize that you are in control. Give us confidence in that strength of the days ahead. We thank you and we praise you. And Lord, we do love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.